The first break's always the biggest break in any career. I just happened to be graduating in Nottingham as Radio Trend was opening. They were taking on an entire staff and I became a one of those. I know what my first television commentary was, and that was in 1989. It was quite a famous Manchester derby. City beat Fergie's United 5-1 on the old main road. I had a fantastic mentor, a boxing commentator, Reg Guttridge, who took me under his wing and didn't ask him to. He just took a shine to me. So you've got to identify that audience and you've got to broadcast to them. Hello, welcome to the official DCFC podcast powered by Utilita. Today's guest is one of the most iconic voices in British football from the Premier League to the Champions League, FA Cup finals to England internationals. Clive Tilsley has seen and described it all. A lot of your early years were spent in in this part of the world, in Nottingham, and as you were just telling me, you had links with Derby and stuff as well. Um, how did you get into commentary, into sport, sports broadcasting in the first place? Was that always the dream? Yeah. Um, how did I get into it? I wanted to. <laughs> um, it was a very different, uh, well, it, it's a very different world now from any time in my life. Uh, but um, I... I had my heart set on being a football commentator. My parents would tell you probably from, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 years of age. But um, back in the late 16th century when I was a child, um, there were very, very few media courses in the, um, in the UK a further education system. And I did apply for a couple, but I, I wasn't successful. So I finished up taking industrial economics and politics at Nottingham and, um, and just availing myself of any kind of opportunity to to dip my toe in the media water. I became the editor of the university newspaper, et cetera, et cetera. And um, the first break's always the biggest break in any career, in any field. And um, I just happened to be graduating in Nottingham as Radio Trend was opening. So they were taking on an entire staff, including three trainees, um, T-boys really. Um, and I became one of those but but because my ambitions were always in sport because I had a late night rock show to begin with once I played all my favorite records and um and failed to seduce any students to come into the uh, to to my to to be part of my late night show um I I decided that I I wasn't going to be the next Bob Harris I was going to be the next John Watson so um I concentrated on football from that point onwards. And, uh, and yeah, first 18 months of my career I spent at Radio Trent. What was your, your first commentary? Can you remember? <laughs> um, I know what my first television commentary was. Uh, that was in 1989. It was quite a, a famous Manchester derby, funny enough. City beat United, Fergie's United 5-1 at the old main road. Um, I couldn't tell you when I graduated from those kind of three 45-second reports that we were allowed to do probably on local radio. I mean, we're talking about the, the very early years of uh, commercial radio. Some of your older viewers will remember the pirate ships that we grew up listening to, uh, all our, our music, Radio Luxembourg, Radio Caroline. And um, in the, um, the mid-1970s, um, the UK government um, outlawed all of those uh, ships that were radio stations aboard boats that were sort of moored somewhere out in the North Sea. 
And in their place, they introduced um, to rival the BBC, in particular the BBC local stations like BBC Radio Derby and BBC Radio Nottingham, some commercial stations. And the first tranche of them were kind of Capital and Piccadilly in Manchester and Clyde in Glasgow. And in the second tranche um, came Radio Trent, among uh, others in, in Nottingham, but Nottingham covering the whole of the East Midlands area, really, Derby County, Mansfield Town, to a degree, Lincoln City were as much on our map, really, as forests and counties. So um, I did travel uh, throughout the region. Uh, Dave Mackay was in charge at Derby with Des Anderson. Dear Des used to look after me. We used to go down to the training ground on, on the ring road there at Rainsway. And, of course, there were champions in 75, which is, I think, that's probably the year that Radio Trent came on air. Um, I remember going to Hillsborough to cover the 76 semi-final where Master United beat them in the FA Cup. Um, so, yeah, I've got, uh, I've got very fond recollections. And, of course, the Forest manager was Brian Clough. He was my first manager, and, um, which was uh, a baptism of fire. And, um, you know, probably my biggest recollection of that era was that Derby County actually offered him the job again, I think probably after Dave. and he. He really was like that as to whether or not to go back. And that was a very dramatic sort of 24 hours in the life of East Midlands football. And actually, I was at the city ground with the then chairman, Stuart Dryden. And when Cluffy left, uh, uh, Peter went home, Peter Taylor went home, Cluffy left to go to the baseball ground. And we thought he was going to take the job. And I stayed behind to cover the Nottingham end of the story. And Stuart Dryden gave me the exclusive. He said, he's not going. He's going, he's going there to say no. He said, don't say, yet, don't say anything yet because you'll be hung on the way into the baseball ground. But he actually went to Derby to tell them, that um, to tell you that he wasn't going to uh, become the manager again. So that was an uh, incredible day as a, as a young rookie reporter. <laughs> there are so many people that seem to deal with Cluffy sort of early in, in their careers. Have you got a a Cluffy story, a, a meeting, a, a confrontation, maybe even with him? Yeah, I mean, you know, any serious conversation about Brian Clough has, um, has to include alcohol. And um, uh, it was the only fight that he couldn't win. Uh, Barbara, who is a wonderful woman, mm. uh, couldn't turn him around. He couldn't turn himself around much as he wanted to. And it beat him. And it beat him up. And uh, he, he was drinking in that period so um he was erratic um but that was part of the magic um you know the most extraordinary managerial style in so much that the players might not see him for three four days sometimes two weeks you know he took these famous mid-season breaks in spain peter took over um but Funny enough, I've got a i've got a book coming out uh, in may where I, I'm, I'm there's a whole chapter dedicated to to that kind of experience in, in my life, watching him and, and watching his management. And my best friend in football, my first friend in football, was Martin O'Neill. And Martin and Brian had a, a bit of a hate-hate relationship. Um, yeah, I think, you know, Martin's a really smart guy. He was university educated, and, and there was a kind of clash of cultures there in the dressing room. Plus, nearly everybody else in the team was left-footed, and Martin would tell you the ball never came down that side of the field. Um, but but the biggest compliment that he can ever have paid to, to Brian is that when Martin became a manager, there were a lot of the same traits. And I, I actually think that in any field, football or any field, 
surprise, uncertainty is a fantastic management tool. You know, I've had bosses who were um, fearsome creatures who'd rollick you every single day. And after a while, <clears throat> you kind of see them coming and you take them and you move on. But when you're not sure what's coming next from your boss, you're not sure even when your boss is going to turn up or what he's going to do, what he's going to say, keeps you on edge. And all of those little um, managerial devices, whether they were whether they were carefully thought out or whether they were just the, the nature and the character of the man, we'll never know. But um, it was a very, very exciting time to be around uh, Nottingham Forest because you just really didn't know what was going to come next. Yeah, really interesting to hear about your, your early career. Um, I want to get into the minutiae of, of commentary with you um, because you know, that, that's what you're known for. Um, and your charts, just having a quick look through earlier, um, are fascinating. Your handwriting is uh, is magnificent, by the way. Um, talk to me about how you prepare for a commentary and, and where that sort of developed, because nobody ever really shows you how to prep, do they? I had a fantastic mentor, uh, strangely a boxing commentator, Reg Guttridge, who took me under his wing and taught me 99% of what I know about communication, let alone broadcasting or specifically about commentary. I didn't ask him to. He just took a shine to me and he was a very forceful personality and we got on wonderfully well. It was tough love at times. Um, the morning after a game, I get a phone call from him uh, analyzing my performance and um, there were a couple of ticks and a lot of crosses and I, I learned a great deal from him. And probably the, the biggest single underlying facet of of his approach to it, and he was a former newspaper man, is that this, this is journalism. You know, this is telling a story, not telling a story like Jack and Nori, but telling a story to an audience. So you've got to identify that audience and you've got to broadcast to them. Um, uh, he used to chastise me for commentating to the England manager. He said, commentate to your grandma, commentate to the guy that's driving the taxi. You know, com but think about who your audience is. And of course, when and I've been fortunate enough to commentate to 20-odd million people on England games, major tournaments and Champions League finals, when the audience is that big, when it's just about the whole country, then in a way you've got to tell your, your commentary to that. Reg actually said there's an argument for explaining the offside law during a World Cup semi-final to 25 million people because suddenly your Auntie Elsie and Uncle Joe are watching one of their only two or three football matches of the year. But they're as important as the man or woman who watches every single game. And you've got to include them. You've got to, you've got to welcome them in to, to this communal... Um, this, I mean, whether we're watching it in a pub with our mates or whether we're all gathered around the television set, sort of old-school style, three generations at home watching a big game... There are very few experiences in our life that we share with people in quite that way, particularly when we have the investment in supporting our club and our team is playing. Um, so the, the commentator bears a lot of responsibility in, in, in those circumstances. And the main responsibility is to identify your audience and broadcast to them. So you might actually commentate on a, a Europa League game that's kicking off at 5.30 on BT Sport between two mainland European clubs in a different way than you would commentate on a, you know, a Derby Forest Derby match, which is live on Sky and, and, you know, probably being watched by an audience of a million and a half. So 
um, yeah, you've, you've got to think like a journalist and you've got to ask yourself, what's the story here? What, what, uh, before the game, what's the introduction? You know, what's kind of the opening paragraph in that, in that wonderful piece that a great journalist like Paul Haywood or Martin Samuel or Danny Taylor might write? And then at the end of it, you know, what's the final conclusion? What are your closing words after the whistle's gone before you hand back to the studio? And all the time, you're having to try to analyze and editorialize the story. Um, so quite apart from all the techniques, you know, not talking too much, adding to the action. Obviously, radio commentary is very different from television commentary. Um, you're far more important as a radio commentator because you are the eyes of that audience. In television, the most important person is the man or woman who's directing the match. It's a visual medium. So you are following the pictures. You are just, you are the soundtrack to the movie. And however many great movie soundtracks there are, you don't go to the cinema to listen to a soundtrack. You go to see the visual experience. And similarly, turning on a television or watching a match on a, on a tablet or whatever, it is a visual experience. And the, and the TV commentator has got to get his or her uh, vain head around that. And, and just add to the pictures. It's very important for the co-commentator to amplify, tell us something that we're not seeing. And a lot of this stuff came from Reg, just getting me to take a step back and look at what it is we're trying to ask ourselves, what it is we're trying to achieve, rather than just doing a load of prep, turning up, spilling out all these numbers, because you know I've damn well done this research in the last two days, so you're damn well going to hit. No, no, that's no good. Doing research is easy. How you use it, when you use it, that if there is a skill in what we do is, is the skill. Talking to the audience, watching the game, you know, reacting to the game rather than trying to dictate to the program yourself. You, you are just a passenger on this thrill ride and you've just got to hang on and go with it and reflect it the best you can. So it is journalism. It is, it's, it is just that. It is turning up, being given uh, a free ticket to one of the best seats in the house and then talking to all the people who would love to be in that seat. You mentioned, you know, spewing out facts and figures. How much prep will you do for a commentary and how much of that will you use in the game? Because I think there is a perception sometimes that commentators just wheel out statistic after statistic and, and actually, as you say, you're telling a story, you probably, you probably don't need those numbers. No, and... Um, you know, statistics are nothing new. Um, there's almost, um, like anything, t t t television football broadcasts go through fashions. Uh, and and uh, 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 certain eras, something is cool and sometimes it's not. It's only like music or movies or anything, that, you know. And at the moment, stats are cool. Stats are as old as the hill. Stats, I mean, all of the statistical analysis that the, the modern – uh, football coach will do is only for a purpose. It's not just that to compile. You talk about these commentary charts. I mean, these are the these these are the prep notes that I do for a, for a big game. This, this is a little business that we've said where we're doing prints of famous ones. You see this one, two thousand eight Champions League final, certain number ten for Manchester United. One or two people may recognise, but that is um, that is a print of the kind of notes that I do for every game. But they have two purposes. Yeah, one to make sure that I know more about the backdrop, the background to that game than anybody who's watching or listening, because that is my job. But as I say, anybody can do that. Anybody at all can do that. And the second purpose really is more of a psychological thing, that when I look down 
uh, at my notes just before um, the presenter hands to me, it is, um, it's, it's not a safety net as much as a comfort blanket. I, it's not, some people say, oh, you've got those facts if the game goes dull. No, no, it's nothing to do with that. It's a comfort blanket which says to myself, I have done everything I possibly can to be ready for this game. Just like a footballer will prepare in training and I've done that extra yard, that extra little bit of training, just to make sure that he or she is as primed and ready to perform as they can be. But there's no guarantee they will, because it's how you apply your fitness, how you apply what the, the coach has given you in terms of information to help you play about the system. We're going to play information about the opposition, some of it which may be statistical. And I just laugh out loud if I'm doing a Champions League game, um, because... At halftime, they flash up all these stats. And I absolutely guarantee that the two players, or the four players who will be top on pass completion, will be the four centre-backs. There is no mention in that statistic that most of their passes have been played under no pressure over about eight metres to each other and back and forth, you know, while a team is resting with the ball. Of course, they've got good passing accuracy. They're not being required to try to hit the kind of ball that, that Wayne has made himself into a legend, the cutting ball, the telling ball, the killer ball, you know, the ball that makes a difference, the ball that carries an element of risk with it. I mean, the statistic is just, it's just a fool. It's a lie. It's almost, you know, we're hearing a lot from the dear outgoing president of the USA about fake news. Fake news is there because we don't tell the real news well enough in my business and the media generally. That's why there's a hole for fake news. And football, football is becoming full of fake news. I hate it when I hear, um, you know, prominent presenters on national television programs going, oh, VAR, go oh, on, VAR again. When, A, very often the problem isn't VAR. It's either the laws of the game in case of handball or something like that, or the actual application of VAR by human beings, you know, who've got it wrong. Instead of just moaning about VAR, explain VAR, explain the laws of the game to an audience. You know, don't don't sort of talk above their heads and just tut and, and shrug the shoulders and say, oh, it's, we need this out of the It's not going out of the game. It's in the game forever. So you better get used to it. And you better learn how it's actually improving the game, how it's making the game, uh, how it's, it's becoming easy for teams that, do want to play with a high line, for instance, defending, that they can rely on the, the fact that the decision will be corrected if they get it right. So, you know, advancements in, in you know, statistical analysis and the kind of uh, information that's available to, to me as a commentator are only so good if we use them properly. If we use that information in such a way that actually amplifies what what was what we're seeing our amplifies our understanding of it. So, you know, I think I think we've become very lazy as television. I think mainly because so much football is on TV, mm. and it is just hour after hour after hour now. Um, and I love football, and I love it as much today as I ever did. But am I watching every game at the moment? Well, I'm seeing something of every game at the moment because that's part of my job. But my wife, for instance, just so happens in our household, she's not particularly interested in football. Am I going to put her through watching a live Premier League game every night of the week when, you know, it almost separates us? And we're, we're so happy in our bubble. But if I'm watching as I was last night, okay, Leicester Chelsea was a big game. I thought I should watch that. 
she's just reading a book. That's no good, you know, that we want to do something together. So, um, and I, I think that part of what I was talking about before the journalism, I think we've almost got to be bold enough to reflect that as commentators, as broadcasters. That it, here we go again, you know. Did you see the six o'clock game? No, you probably didn't, you know, <laughs> because there's, a, there's another one tomorrow and the day after. I think there's only Friday this week where there isn't a Premier League. Probably every night, Championship football, I don't know. But, yeah, just, just it's a rambling answer. But what I'm saying is that all of this information that's available to us now, pick and choose. And how much do I use during the game? Hopefully no more than 10%. One last question on sort of the art of commentary. Um, do you prepare lines? Obviously, for the big moments, maybe things you can't predict, you can't. But will you go into a game with an idea of what you might say if this happens? Or, or do you prefer to be purely spontaneous? Well, firstly, I don't think it's a crime to prepare stuff. Uh, it's a little bit like the, uh, I mean, in terms of the prep for a game, um, probably 50% of the time I will spend on the kind of steps that are traditionally associated um, with commentators. And stat packs come out, um, but they are, I mean, they've they almost got too much information in them. I mean, just for instance, we, it's a big stat now about uh, res- resolution is now a word, you know, whether a team is good at coming from behind or whether a team is good at holding a lead. But again, the circumstances are totally different. I, I, I was watching Manchester United and Liverpool at the weekend and there was this big thing about, our oh, Manchester United are really good at scoring goals in the second half of the game and the stat comes up. Yeah, they're, they're good at scoring goals in the second because they're usually behind by now. That's why they're good. And they're throwing everything at it to try to retrieve a game. They're not behind today. They're playing a careful game against the reigning champions. You know, they're, they're going to do what they almost did. They're going to try and carve out a couple of chances, take one, and hope that the best goalkeeper in the world doesn't save it. Now, that is uh, that fact about Manchester United's capacity to do well in the second half needs more thought than just the numbers. And as a commentator beforehand, you should be asking yourself, going back to the journalism, the editorial questions, why are Manchester United good? And now, if you want to scribble down a couple of lines which paraphrase what I've just said in a succinct and tight way, which doesn't waste the precious airtime and the viewers' time listening to my ra- the rambling explanation, I, I don't think that's cheating. I think that... Now, if you use it when Manchester United are 3-0 up midway through, well, it doesn't apply. So, yeah, by all means, prepare editorial lines which you think may be of may be value to you just in the way that a fact may be of value to you. And certainly... Before a major cup final, like a Champions League final, I will have a little section of PSG win, Bayern Munich win. What it means, not not adjectives, but just headlines. You know, Paris Saint-Germain, um, all the quarterfinals they played in semi-finals, list them and, and eventually their first final. Now the big breakthrough. Now they belong at whatever the top table of Europe. Something like that. Yeah, it, you might use it or you might not, um, but at least it's it's there and available. And similarly, I think during a game, if it's 3-3 and um, the Rams win a free kick on the edge of the penalty area and were, were deep into stoppage time, and there's a chance they could win it from this moment, and 
whoever takes a fantastic free kick curls it in the top corner. That moment deserves more than, oh, amazing, incredible, fantastic, unbelievable. It deserves better than that. So it's not a crime to be thinking, what the heck am I going to say if this curls in and goes in the top corner? And just prepare a word, something which which captures that moment, almost like a, the morning's headline, the next the next day's headline on the back page of the mirror or the sun. If you can come up with that moment, uh, that word, at that moment, then you're, you, you know, you're 12 hours ahead of the head, headline writers. And I think that is proper preparation, not just bringing together the facts, but bringing together and trying to anticipate the story. What's the story here? Is there a moment that you wish you could you could have another go at? Is there a, is there a <laughs> line? No, there are one million. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are loads. But, but is, there one, but is there one that really sticks out for you? They belong in the moment. The, 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 the words that you, you make mistakes, you don't want to make mistakes. Um, and if you're serious about your job, which you should be if you're lucky enough to have a job like mine, like yours, um, then you are serious about it. And... Sometimes I, I hope that I, um, I, you know, I know that we don't save lives. We're not really that important. Everybody wants our job, but it's really not that important. That's in the scheme of things mm. at the moment. So you, you've got to put it into perspective, your job. But you still take it seriously. And I hate making mistakes. I always try to watch back the commentaries. I am my own biggest critic. I'm very rarely happy with everything uh, that I've done. Um, I mean, you know, that probably the only moments that, listen, this is not a platform for talking about Twitter storms, which, you know, you can fall into it almost without trying, well, certainly without trying uh, today. But there have been a couple of things which have caused Twitter storms where maybe I didn't deserve the attention that I got. But nonetheless, if I could go back and choose my words differently, yeah, possibly, Um I would, but it's not a scripted performance. And people have got to understand that. And I, you know, because we all have opinions on football and you and I have never been out there in the middle, which is kind of what the co-commentator does. The co-commentator is the man or woman who has been down there and comes back and tells the rest of us what it's like. But that doesn't mean that you and I can't have an opinion. We can still have an opinion. It's a qualified opinion because we've, we've never actually done it. And so I would never say to somebody who's never commentated, oh, what do you know? You've never done it. But I would say to them, if you want to come with me one day and try it, then you might just have a different view. It's amazing, you know, with, with um, FanZone. And if, you, if you ever, ever find anybody sort of mimicking a commentator, their version of what we do is just a collection of the very worst cliches of commentators. You know, if if you ask one of your mates who's never never picked up a microphone, go and be a commentator for ten seconds, they go, "Oh well, there we go, game of two halves." And we don't talk like that actually. <laughs> that's not how, that's how you think, but that's how Alan Partridge talks. It's not. It's certainly not how we're trying to talk. Um, we're trying to do it a little bit differently and a, a little bit more seriously than that. Um, we are trying to get it right and we are trying to do all these things all this preparation in order to make it as good as it can possibly be i when i was i don't know 17 18 years of age if somebody has said i I promise you you will get 30 seconds of live television football commentary at some time in your life 
I can promise you that. You're going to be an accountant, but at some stage, you're going to get the opportunity. I'd have kind of taken that, just the opportunity to do it once. And so I am as precious about those 30 seconds that I might have had in that dream as I am about the next 30 seconds, or I try to be. I don't, I hopefully I don't waste airtime. Airtime is a gift to us. It's a chance for us to communicate. Communication is something that's sadly lacking in the world, you know, full stop at, at the moment. Communicating to people who are hugely involved, emotionally involved in this product. You know, this isn't Top Gear or Mastermind. This is a live football match, and people are on the edge of their seats, and they hate you because their team is losing. It's your fault, you know. So they are mad men and women, really, who are watching us, and we're trying to talk in a reasoned, considered, journalistic way to them. It's a wonderful challenge. And, yeah, we're going to make mistakes, but if, you know, before you call me out on Twitter or ask for my resignation or demand my sacking, just come up to the high board with me. You know, when you're jumping in at the, at, at the swimming pool and, and, and having a bit of fun, you know, that high board that we all look at and think, ooh, I'm not going up there. Come up here. It's 28 million people live. It's England in a World Cup semifinal. Come up here and just have a look over the edge uh, and see if you're as confident. Uh, and that, that, that would be as arrogant as I would ever get in the face of a critic because I'm lucky to have the job. I know that. And I am precious about the airtime. But before you, you start actually abusing me and saying things about me which is just simply not true come up to the high board and try it let me ask you about Derby let me ask you about Wayne Rooney who you will have well you have commented on commentated on on many of his finest moments uh Wayne Rooney the manager did you ever think you'd see it no no I didn't the 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 thing I admire most about Wayne apart from his sheer talent and 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 his appetite to play football is that he's kind of done it his way during his career. I mean, just look at the achievements. I mean, he is the all-time England record goal scorer. He's the all-time Manchester United record goal scorer. I think great is overused in football, but that's a great. You know, that is a great. We, we will talk in 20 years' time, hopefully to grandchildren, I'm still... Um, you know, not Gaga, that I saw Wayne Rooney, yeah, I saw I saw George Best play, yeah, I was lucky to, to, to do that, and I see Maradona play, and um, I've seen Johan Cruyff play, but I've seen Wayne Rooney play, I actually saw him play, and you know, that's how special a footballer he is, and the numbers just back that up completely, but he did it his way, he, he in a way, you know, I think he would have been absolutely sensational in the 70s and 80s. You know, playing Cluffy's team with uh, Hector and O'Hare and Hinton, that's kind of almost, he is a bit old school in terms of sports science and everything surrounding it. So, yeah, I, I, I thought he would kind of retire gracefully. Uh, and he's obviously, you know, got a very happy family life now. And, um, yeah, it's great to, to follow him on Instagram and see the boys and everything. Um, so why would he need, I mean, presumably, you know, he's reasonably comfortably off. Well, surprise, surprise, he wants more of it. He, you know, that, that competitiveness is still there, it's still burning. And he now wants to put all of that reputation that he's built up, which he can, he can just retire now. He can retire and do nothing else now. 
He wants to put that on the line, same way that Frank has, Frank has done. And, um, yeah, it has surprised me, and I, I admire him all the more for it. He doesn't need to be doing this. He really doesn't need to be doing this. You know, a lot of managers making their way in, in the game, you know, this is their vocation. It's, it's what they've got to do in order to, to sort of make their mark on football. Wentz done all that. He's made a massive mark on football. So he, he really could be, he, he could be watching this with his feet up and making, a, you know, a, a, a nice living out of working in the media and doing promotional stuff and just living on the legend of Wayne Rooney. No, no, he's not prepared to do that. He, he wants some more of this. He wants to bring, he, he almost wants to put, it's almost like he wants to put, I know he's getting well paid, but it's almost like he wants to put something back. And um, yeah, he's gone way up in my estimations because I just didn't see this coming, this development in his life. 